Art of the Cut is brought to you by FilmTools.com, your one-stop shop for production and post-production gear. Be sure to listen for an exclusive site-wide offer later in the show. Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. Today I'm talking with Mike J. Nichols. He's edited a lot of documentaries, including Billy Joel's Last Play at Shea and Echo in the Canyon, and was an assistant editor on Ron Howard's Eight Days a Week documentary, for which I interviewed editor Paul Crowder for a previous Art of the Cut. He also cut the feature Compulsion. His most recent documentary was Zappa, with director Alex Winter. I asked him how a Midwestern kid started his long, strange connection with Frank Zappa and his son Dweezil. I wrote Dweezil Zappa, who was a VJ on MTV when I was a teenager. And then we began a correspondence and a friendship, and Frank was his dad to me. Uh, I mean, I knew of him, but I, I never listened to that music, and I didn't know much. And so if I ever called the house, and it was very rare that Frank would ever answer, because he slept uh, in the daytime. But when he did answer, it was unique, Uh but I didn't know him in the music world. I had to come into that later. And this is even an entry point for me, too. Um, I, I mentioned this in a uh, another recording the other day that this was kind of a... I, I made a film with Dweezil, a music video with Dweezil when, when we were younger, and I always kind of wondered how we developed this friendship because I was living in Ohio at the time, and I mean, it was in the middle of nowhere. And how that connectivity ever happened, it didn't make any sense to me. But going through all this footage, I began to see Frank's early life and see these weird, interesting parallels of the way he was working and what I had been doing coming from... He was from nowhere, sort of uh, the same thing. And I started seeing these interesting parallels. And I'm like, some of this is starting to make sense, but it took like a lifetime to figure this out for me. So, yeah. So then I had to do what the audience may do on this. I uh, find my own way into it as well. The more I kind of listened to this and the more I, you know, saw your short film and what little I know of you, there are a lot of parallels. I, I loved, there's a great quote that you start, kind of start the documentary off with almost of him talking about how much he loves to edit. He said, I became obsessed with editing and he means film editing. Uh, and I would edit just because I liked to edit. I would splice eight millimeter film together. Anything that was in the house, I would splice to something else. So Frank is one of us. Yes, like very much so. And and just like you, like when I start going through all that footage and I find this interview, I'm just like, oh my God. Oh, you know, like I was so excited to find that. And he's literally talking about his super eight filmmaking in that scenario. I mean, he really was. He was talking to this guy. He seemed to like many of the people that he interviewed with over the years, he either liked or he didn't really like them. And this is one of the guys I think that he enjoyed and he smiles when he would give his uh, comments about that. And the guy said, well, Frank, how did you get into film? And they were usually the worst interviewers, too. They were, how did you get into film, Frank? And he goes, well, I used my dad's 8-millimeter camera and some Dynachrome film from the, the drugstore. And he graphically explains this. I will add that this is another interesting timbit that he took his dad's camera, tied it to a string, and went out in the yard, and he spun it around and turned the camera on. And then he came inside and he did the same thing. Now, I'm imagining that his dad said, I'm never letting you use that camera again because that's <laughs> terrible. But going through the footage after Alex gave it to me, I found that. 
No way. So I found the roll of film that he's speaking of in that interview, and I've concluded that the outdoor footage is the thing he shot first. The indoor footage, which actually has Christmas trees in it, is the second part of the day or that period of that roll of film. And I used it. When we enter into that phase, it's a transition. I use just a bit of that uh, to bookend the movie, his entry into his world of editing. I love it. Um, how did you get a rela- develop a relationship with Alex Winter, the director? I'd actually never met him, but I I will tell you an interesting story. Back in the day when Dweezil was on MTV, he was working on a show. Like he wanted to pitch a show. And if you know anything, they were looking for content at that point because they didn't have licensing rights to all these videos. So they were always looking for content to own. And Dweezil wanted to do a show. And on it, I had been doing some stop motion, eight uh, millimeter animation. And he said, look, we're going to do a show and I'll, I'll play videos, but then I'll have the Mike Nichols cheap animation segment. And you'll do these <laughs> weird paper cutout things. He would do music for it. And it would just be a minute long, 30 seconds long, something in the show. And somewhere in that amount of time, Alex had this thing called Idiot Box that he was pitching to uh, MTV. And each episode was only about five to seven minutes long with zaniness and craziness. And he'd been doing some music videos. And they opted for that because it wasn't 30 minutes long. Like, I think he his whole season was 35 minutes long of all these little episodes. So I knew who he was, and I knew that he was filmmaking back then, but I'd, I'd actually never uh, uh, met him. And even when we did the pitch for this film, I hadn't met him then either. Glenn Zipper, uh, I'd worked on Last Play at Shea um, for the Billy Joel film, which came out in t- 2010. And Glenn um, suggested me, and he wrote me a... Facebook message and said, how would you like to work on a Frank Zappa film with Alex Winter? I think he'd been seeing my Facebook post because I had been going out researching it because I myself thought no one's really doing this. So I start posting little things about Zappa on my Facebook and I think I just clicked with Glenn and he was like, look, you're the guy. Do you want to do this? Yeah. So we talked on the phone, but during that time, I still never met him. You mentioned using that crazy footage from the Super 8 camera. There's a lot of eight millimeter crazy montage, psychedelic stuff that I just thought was so perfect for Frank. Talk to us about building some of those little sequences, if there's one that you like the best. My favorite is the Moon Zappa. That is just my favorite. It was very early in the game, and the idea that I'll come back to this, and that is that the 8-millimeter footage, and I know you know this, when people had 8-millimeter cameras, they would use them sort of like a still camera. It's almost like... it's Four seconds. Yeah, it's almost like what iPhone does when they have that live picture thing. So they would just film, and somebody would wave, and they'd be like, oh, there's Grandma picking up something on the beach. It's just a series of of two and a half minutes worth of film of people almost just slight little moving montages, and then they just were taking pictures. And he was no exception to that. A lot of that footage is not all-encompassing. And when I first started this, people would go, oh, I saw the Amy Winehouse documentary. You just take a bunch of footage, and they made the whole movie out of that. And I was like, the difference is, Amy Winehouse had an iPhone. It has hours worth of audio and picture, and most of the film stuff had zero audio. And sometimes... Longest takes were eight seconds. You know, they were not all-encompassing and he or or documentary-ish. And he was also such an experimentalist that he was rewinding the role of film and double exposing it. 
and then he would get it from the store and he would shoot it on something and re-photograph his own work and run it backwards or do other things. So he's always experimenting with it. And when you grab it, it isn't always the most accessible for a documentary because he's also not in it. Most of the stuff that he's shooting, he's recording friends and weird experiments and even the family movie footage that is there, he's barely in it because he always ran the camera. So when you were talking about the him editing that stuff in, the way in is you almost have to show his work to talk about how he used that stuff because he wasn't that present in any of his uh, early movie footage. You uh, alluded to the fact that there is not sound on a lot of the 8mm footage. The camera that I had didn't have sound on it. Talk to me about the sound design on the 8mm footage. I love sound design. And I think that it's, you know, at least a third of filmmaking. Oh, go ahead and say half. Come on. Here's what I was going to say is, I do think it's that, but if you include in, like, emotional aspect of those two things, I'll be like, okay, I'll give that a third. It is sometimes more transferring than the imagery is. Like, you're being assigned in this somebody else's aesthetic. Uh, I didn't shoot this. It wasn't made to be put together in this way. So somebody else's aesthetic may not be the right tool for conveying something. And it's like, well, what do I have left? I have music and sound, or I, I have the, the actual cut itself to create something else. So you're always trying to conquer that. And I, I love sound. And I, I think that you could be overwhelming with it. And I tried to choose sounds that were dated from that time period. So if there was wind, I took it from something from that time period. So it had a terrible quality to it. Now, I know that in the end of the sound mix, sometimes those people might have replaced my sound with something else because they thought, oh, that doesn't sound as good. But what I meant was I wanted it to, to unite with that in a way that didn't take it out. That's just something that happens when you make things. The intention design was is to keep that stuff really in, in the background, and I was calling it pushing air. Don't feature it, just push air. And I think that's probably the thing I say a lot is sometimes I just want things to move the air in the room around. And in its own way, Frank used to call things air sculptures about how sound moved and pushed air around. I didn't know that until I started this project. So I was like, it's perfect for it. You, I just want you to push air around. I love it. There's a really interesting um, experimental montage, Varese's ionization montage. Can you talk to me about that? It was really trippy. I almost want to ask you why you like it, because I think at the same time, I would say it's the thing that people would hate the most. I thought it was fantastic. Alex was like, uh, you know, I think I, I think he showed it to his oldest son, and, and they they said they could just watch two hours of that. I know the audience will, but you know, we could just watch two hours of that. It was like I was finding films of the time that talked about what sound was, and that's where like little pieces of the uh, the audio waveforms that were from uh, 1959 movies and things to combine that. And there's even things like. Frank was so good at typography. Like, it's, it's amazing how great of an artist he was then, and that's not anything that ever got talked about. And he made lots of cards for movies that he never made, inner titles. And one of them is, the music that you were seeing is not synced to picture. And I just think it's funny because he was making his own demo and went, oh, by the way, I don't have any control of this, so the music is not synced to the picture. And I just found that so amusing. So in the middle of that, it appears in his you know, in his montage. I think that's one of those things that I, I started on it and like many things, a Saturday afternoon I would return to it to just keep 
messing with it. There's another part where it is some footage of him when he first starts playing guitar. And I did a little bit of that there. And I think it was the point where initially people thought I went too far. And uh, it would be like, back it off. But I know when you get to the end of the movie, I don't think it would have been as offensive as they thought. Because they just thought, is the whole movie going to be like this? Like you said, is it going to be like this the whole way through? And Alex goes, look, if we can get people past that first few minutes, then we have them. But uh, it would be like, let's tone that one little part down a little bit. But the Edgar Varez is nuts. And, you know, there's screams and sound effects. And a lot of those voices I think I, I, I'd mentioned to you are, are me. Uh, like I would record sounds. And, and I always try to take it from him uh, of anything in his vault or anything I could replace it with. But sometimes it, they're just me. Explain who Varez is and who he is to Zappa and why the montage made sense story-wise. So... I think that when you find something that is your seminal moment and it becomes the poster that hangs on your wall when you're a kid. Oh so my God. many of us, it's like Star Wars. It is. Or I would say it would, it, be, is, it would be right? Star Wars for, you know, for me. Like Jaws. that became this thing. Jaws. Frank wasn't even really into music. He went to this record store, and I'm sorry I don't know the name because he graphically explains it in some of the footage, but it was a record from Edgar Varez with this really creepy picture of a mad scientist-looking guy on the cover. And the price kept being reduced. <laughs> and he had money in his pocket, and he was just fascinated by the image of it, not knowing who he was. He found an article where somebody had said that it was the most, like, grossest, offensive yeah, most music. Offensive, yeah. And he went, I have to have it. And so he, he looks for it. And he goes back <laughs> into that store and realizes that they're reducing the price. And he says, look, I have this much money. Can I buy it? And the guy sells it to him. And when he goes home and plays it, it rings a bell. And this is not rock and roll music. It's, you know, it's percussion. It's sounds. I guess the the term, and, and, and I went back and kind of was looking at this, is all of us had taken tape recorders and sort of recorded off the radio and you get the, that weird... Um, Pierre Schaeffer and Pierre Henri were these two composers who had music and they, they called it music concrete. And it was like a slamming or interruption of sounds and, and images and stuff. Merch and is real big into it. Uh, yes. I actually looked it up for his talk on that. I think he loved it and that sort of represented it for him, except that it was orchestra music and he was hearing it being done like in a setting where somebody intended on it having these loud percussive sounds. And at the time, everything was horns and things, but he loved the drums, loved how loud and obnoxious it was. And so that music spoke to him, and he wanted to share it with everybody. And very few people ever heard it the way he did. And a lot of his early performances were as a drummer instead of as a guitarist. Yeah, he was a drummer in a band. Yeah, that's how he started out. And he wrote Varez. We obviously don't have the time to go into to, to that, but he called him, found out that he was in New York, and he called him on the phone, and he was out, and his wife uh, said, hey, there's a Frank Zappa uh, called you. He's a young kid who loves your music, and he wrote him a, a letter. And if you've been at Frank's house, some of the interviews, it's hanging on the wall in the background. It's now in the new office. But he has the personal letter that Edgar Varez wrote him. And I find it strange because it isn't something that he was a person who put a lot of things around, but that just seems to be one of the most important things, as if, like, George Lucas wrote me a letter and I put it on my wall. Like, it's the iconic thing for him. It changed him. Tell me a little bit about the structure of the movie. It seems like it's basically in order other than the beginning. Is that correct, or am I missing some structural changes? I would say yes, because it was not a literal script, it was uh, it was a timeline. 
you know, like a research timeline of events. And when you look at it, you would say, this was relevant, this wasn't. If this was a story that was going to go here, you kind of know what's relevant and what's not. So it really sort of began as a timeline. It's my fault sometimes when we break the, the timeline because I was seeing this footage of Frank speaking to the Czechoslovakia people on the evening of the Soviet occupation of the country. They were leaving the night before and they asked him to come there. Before the movie started, I watched this footage and thought it was the weirdest juxtaposition of Frank on stage talking to thousands of people in another country, telling them, in a unique story, Alex, when I pitched it to him, and I'll finish that, but I just thought the juxtaposition of that, like, what is happening right now, was a great way to enter the movie. That if you know who he is, you think it's weird. If you don't, you'll be like, I have no idea what's going on, but you expect that it's going to tell you that. And when I put that kind of like at the beginning of the film and Alex was sitting next to me and I look at him and I didn't still know him really well at that point. And I was like, I was thinking maybe we start the movie out with, with, with this, this footage and I, and I show it to him. And what I was trying to say is uh, it's like Frank talking to all those people and he's saying, be excellent to each other. And that's the <laughs> click that went through my head, right? And I look up at him, and Alex has this very genuine look on his face. He's looking at me, and the words in my head are forming. It's Frank telling Czechoslovakia to be excellent to each other. And I look up to one of two people that you shouldn't say that to. And he's got this look. I said, so it's like, you know, do stuff that's like cool and and, good. and I'm fumbling to not say that. And I'm like, it's so unique because it's not a phrase I ever said before. So it just clicked in my head. And I tried so hard to not say it because they'd be like, oh, gee, this is what we're doing. You and I know who Alex Winter is. Who is Alex Winter for the audience? Notably, uh, you know, Alex is most known for playing the character Bill in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures. And although he has a a previous career as a, a you know, child actor on stage and 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 dancing and things like that, he really is known uh, historically for that. Yeah, and then he you know he sort of became a, a filmmaker. So yes, to say that to him would be the one thing like, no, be excellent to each other. And be like, no, that's not what I should do. You got to be careful what you say to a director, right? Because you're like, I have this perfect beginning, and if I I can't screw it up socially, like I can't screw it up right, politically right. by saying the wrong thing to the director. And he did say, he said, you know, sometimes people have always thought what would be a great beginning for the movie and it never sticks. It never sticks. And I kept going, this one did. <laughs> like, <laughs> this one did. <laughs> like it was a great way to enter the movie. And, and I think you had asked one time why the tuning of the guitar. Oh and yeah. Like, the, the movie starts out and he talks to this audience who is being released from Russian occupation, telling them to be excellent to each other. But he, then he says, I'm going to tune my guitar and he tunes his guitar for a while. <laughs> and, and you were saying, why that? And, and I said, it goes back to the originally when I first time I saw it is that I grew up in an MTV generation and I thought, man, this is awesome. This is awesome because I didn't know anything else. There's an amount of artifice in music that continues to get more and more to the point where sometimes people don't play live anymore. They play for a tape. And it's getting to the point now where people are pre-recording their music in their tracks and they're just lip-syncing on stage like theater. If you were to pick one person in the world who would never do that, it would be Frank Zappa. And not only that, the continuation, his son is playing his music around with these... And they would never do that. Like, that's like, why would you do that? So in highlighting the lack of artifice is that 
hey, everybody, I'm about to play this song for you, and let me now, because there's no way on stage you, you can get by without tuning your guitar. It's the basic thing for playing live. And he says, I'm about to tune my guitar. And everybody cheers. And I always just thought it was so beautiful that we have to leave that in. Because it's totally frank. Yeah. I love it. I'm not questioning it. I'm, well, I am questioning it. I'm not criticizing yeah, it. Yeah, no, I, I like doing. that you pointed that out. Also, at the beginning, uh, another neat spot for me is when he's backstage talking to one of the musicians on stage and they're trying to get something clear. And it's the, what appears to be a throwaway line at the beginning when Frank says, look, it's, it's not professional. It's just music. Because the guy was saying, well, what key are we starting in? And like he's try- but it's in Czechoslovakia. And he goes, look, it doesn't have to be professional. It's just, it's just music. And I think it's <laughs> such a neat thing when you go through the whole movie to know at the beginning that's how he is presenting that at that point in time. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's absolutely. a throwaway line at the beginning. I was struck by how much memory you had to have for audio things and visual things. Like when you're coming up with, you know, there's a lot of weird throwbacks to like buildings exploding or something. And to have that much stuff in your brain where you go, oh, I remember seeing a a clip six months ago. How did you do that? How did you find those clips? I I mean, I think it's actually just part of, I began searching for them, hoping to find stuff like that. Mm. And so it was recorded that way in my brain that I went looking for things like that. Like I pursued it. I am a person who loves to repeat imagery so that something means nothing to you. And later on, the same image all of a sudden has a different weight because you went on the journey. Like, it's just something that I personally love. I love that with sound. Revisiting the same sound effect gives you a different effect than it did at the beginning. And like the monster movie footage to me is, he loved watching these monster movies. I think that the music is very much like the music of Edgar Varese. Um, That kind of music is very reminiscent of that. And he loved the cheesy quality of those movies. So I began to immerse myself watching all these 1950s uh, movies. And to me, music-wise, when he first starts talking about living where he did, which was next to a mustard gas factory, I introduced Frank visually as the monster in this footage. And then as it goes on, the audience hopefully will start to see this government and this authoritarian thing is kind of like, well, that seems far scarier than the guy in the suit. So at different times in the movie, it's Frank's idea of what he is, how people perceive him, and the contrast of that with all the kind of authority figures who are in charge and why he has a problem with authority. And when you meet Ruth, who represents people in his band, she even talks about how the Juilliard people, police, <laughs> came through and told her to stop playing the Frank Zappa music on the, on the, on the thing. Yeah, so she, he's got a, uh, a classically trained Juilliard uh, percussionist in his band. And, like, can you imagine her parents? <laughs> they sent her off to Juilliard. And she, I mean, I love Frank Zappa, but you're like, I was expecting you to be in an orchestra, young lady. <laughs> and, 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 and imagine them coming to see that, and there is an amount of... I mean, they do amount of aesthetics and theatrics and some of it is weird and vulgar and it's never the same thing every night. And they're like, this is what you do. But in her mind, you know, she, her, her perception is I could just be a person playing the triangle on a stage in an orchestra. Now I'm a, like, I'm this active participant in something that I think is incredible. The motif of the monster thing, 
he named his uh, second child's middle name is Rodan from the, the monster. And so I keep adding a, a monster theme sound effect that appears when, as he starts accruing people. And when he unites them, that, that theme always continues on whenever he has a connection with someone else. It's almost like that voice that, you know, a third of the people in the world hear and they're drawn to it, like the mountain in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Uh, they've heard some notes and they're like, oh my God, I'm drawn to this thing. And other people don't know what they're talking about. That woman also had one of the most emotional almost a eulogy of him at the end of the film. I mean, it's beautiful. I don't know what she is like in real life, but she was very giving in in that bit and unrestrained. She's gold kind of in that. Like, she really is a gift. I think Steve Vai and Mike Keneally, the, the random bits of interviews that did exist in this space were, were gifts uh, from those people. The other thing that struck me is something that I learned... Uh, editing for Oprah, which was you only go to the on-camera interview for the important emotional moments. There's no reason for her to be talking about Frank and not having it be emotional. You, you go show Frank or you show her playing percussion. But where are you on her? You're on her as she places her, literally puts her hands in her and in, in her head in her hands to, to cry, to remember Frank. It was so emotional and moving. I would say even too, it's almost uh, out uh I've said this before that I was trying to make everything be like an orchestration with the sound, the music, and the picture. And I still feel like that that is part of the orchestration of where you land on seeing somebody. I love the emotional landing on people's faces. Some people are taking audio in the, in the documentary sense and they're building a conversation with people that you never see their face. I feel a lack of some soul sometimes when I never get to see a person deliver something. That's just me personally. I want to see them speaking. Even if they're you know, in an ugly situation or bad lighting or whatever, I just personally like to see them deliver at least one part of it so I can connect with them. But it seems to me like there were times where you even started on a fresh person that you've not seen on screen before and you do not have them on camera for the beginning of their remarks. Everybody was preceded by a, 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 an older photograph uh, or an older piece of footage. It's not necessarily them talking on camera when you... First here, you are correct. Sometimes you're watching them from on stage or something. Yeah, Ruth's introduction is through footage of her hanging out in New York. Somebody honks a horn and she's turning around like, oh, what was that? I mean, it was Zappa time. So her introduction is through pieces of music without her even speaking. Uh, Vi is a photograph. Uh, everybody was kind of like uh, only introduced that way. We'll be back in a moment with more of my interview with Mike Nichols. Today's episode of the Art of the Cut podcast is brought to you by FilmTools.com. Since 1996, FilmTools has been Hollywood's one-stop shop for all things production and post. No matter your filmmaking needs, Film Tools has you covered when you need gear for your next shoot or edit. This week, Film Tools is offering Art of the Cut listeners 10% off thousands of products when shopping on FilmTools.com. All you have to do is enter code AOTC10 at checkout. That's AOTC10 at checkout to get 10% off your purchase on FilmTools.com. So whether you need a GTEC hard drive or an Airy Sky panel, make sure to head over to FilmTools.com and check out with discount code AOTC10 to get 10% off your next equipment purchase. And now back to my interview with Mike Nichols. Uh, sometimes the choice was to let the images describe exactly what was being said, like Zappa saying with percussion and orche orchestral music, you wait a long time, then somebody hits a triangle, and you actually have somebody hit a triangle. You know, it's almost a see and say thing. And then many other times, 
you're being very uh, artistic, let's say, in what somebody's describing and what you're looking at. The triangle bit has a couple of double meanings for me. In one simple sense, you know, some people don't even know what the triangle is. Uh, like music, <laughs> like it's weird to think about that. A lot of people go, oh, it's, the, 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 it's like a this, right? And I'm like, no, it's an instrument that you tap with. It's a percussive instrument. And it's weird that people don't know that. So sometimes even just seeing it sort of helped how insignificant looking it is. Like it, it isn't something that's, that, that's grand. And when Roof begins to talk about it, there's three triangle notes. The first two are Frank flipping off the, the camera because she's saying, I didn't want to do this. Ding, you know, it's Frank flipping off the camera to kind of show his take on, don't do that bullshit. Do what we're doing. And then the last one shows the literal, this is the hitting of the triangle. And I think the effect of that is, yeah, that is boring. In comparison, that really is uneventful uh, for someone like her in comparison. That's the only choice I can kind of say that was. Most of the time, I think they were never literal. Frank was not just a, a rock and roll musician, that he did orchestral stuff. Uh, I noticed what I thought was some score. Is there actual score? Or did you find everything from Frank's own catalog? Originally, I started out when Frank Zappa didn't exist as a musician. I was trying to first use you know how you pull things from real orchestration musics uh, that, that are from music uh, CDs or something. Mm -hmm. And then I would go to libraries and start building it because there was a campy quality, a sci-fi thing. So I was doing that. But uh, it, it became down that we were going to use only Frank Zappa's music. It is a challenge because he is not one for subtlety. And when you're trying to be thoughtful or, or subtle in places, I mean, the music... If it ever starts out there five seconds later, it's not. So it is. It is. A, that's a challenge. And so I was really taking that term, of the, the music concrete, like I was really using that to change dynamics and stuff. And he has a term called xenocrony that he invented, where he would take a guitar solo from one of his live performances and a new recording, and he would combine the two on top of each other. And even though they weren't in the same mechanical structure, it creates a new thing. And so. I took it a little farther where I would take imagery that was intended for something else and place it over this. But I would also take pieces of his sounds and stuff from other songs and combine them together. And if I could get them in the same key, I was making new arrangements that felt like score. And it certainly felt like him because it was from his stuff. Um, there, are, uh, there, there were some moments where I personally didn't have a library to use. And so I started making my own little connections, my connectivity between one piece of music to the other. So there were little score pieces that I made. But they're not the kind of thing that would stick out sound-wise. I mean, they were more like a Verez kind of uh, thing that I would do to get from one key to another or something. Uh, but in the end, there, it, there is some score uh, put in that happened at the end of the movie. An actual composer came in, not yeah, Frank. Yeah, there was a, a you know like music licensing thing that I, I'd used so much music, I, I, I think that we weren't allowed to use all of that. So there was a, a person that came in and did lay out some new score. Uh, I was curious because the, the one place that I was thinking of is there's a very touching uh, place about uh, Moon Unit and the Valley Girl song where, uh, you know, you think... You know, a lot of people who might not know Frank at all, that's where they would know him is the Valley Girl song. And it came from a very kind of sad place where Moon was saying, Dad, I don't even know you and I don't think you know me. Um, so, so, and they came to to have this wonderful uh, 
song that they created. But there's some score or something in there because there's very touching moments with, with him and his daughter. And I felt like there was score under there. Alex likes to, he's been talking lately and saying that the beginning of the movie is very abstract. And it, it is kind of abstract. And I, I, I say that when Moon is born, she represents the interruption of what would be his crazy life. And he's has presented with the situation is, do I become the regular father and I go get a real job? And in his case, he would be somebody like Stravinsky. He would be trying to to, to do music that would be sellable and he might even be doing music for movies. But that's not what he wanted to do. But so in that sequence, I there's an album that the record company edited. Uh, we're only in it for the money. And they went through and edited some portions and it drove him crazy. And so off that, there's a song called Mother People. It's the crazy, zany them dancing around and all of a sudden there's like a record scratch. And what I think is funny is, that's not added. That's in Frank's, like the record scratch, <laughs> which is the sound effect that I always say, tell everybody, no more. You can't ever put the record scratch in the trailer. You can't, like it's, it's a rule. And I'm like, but here it is in an old movie. Like I made this rule to never use the record scratch. I said, but it literally is. I'll just say, I'm going to give him credit for the first person to use the record scratch because it's in the song. And all of a sudden, that crazy zanius becomes this beautiful piece of music that he wrote, like orchestra music. And it goes on for a little bit, and then it gets interrupted with the zaniness again. Like, that happens. And so I thought, all in my mind, I kept picturing, that's Moon. That's, that's what she represents. But I finish it off with a swell from Stravinsky, which ends in Reagan era, and he kind of goes off to do his other thing. But I always just thought he would be like a Stravinsky-type uh, person. It would be odd, percussive sort of music that wasn't, but it would be a little more normal. And yes, you're right. You return to Moon again with the, the Zappa, and there is some score underneath there. Because that is one of the uniquely sad things. If anybody has any children, or even if you don't, you have parents, obviously. The fact that somebody has to kind of almost make an appointment to to hang with their dad. Uh, I want to get back to something else that you said, which was that you like to use imagery, like kind of like a symphonic thing. The one place that I can think of off the top of my head that's like that, which I loved, and you don't understand where the footage is from at first, you figure it out later in the movie, is when he goes to New York, there, New York is like represented by these weird like claymation buildings. It's perfect for Frank. They're like weird shaped and all this stuff. And you're like, where is where is he getting this footage? It's perfect for the mood, but you have no reference for what it, what it is, why it's there, where it came from. Well, you know later on in the story that, that Frank meets uh, an animator named Bruce Bickford, and it's almost at the, I mean, literally tried to be the halfway point of, of the movie where whatever it was he was wanting to do in his life has a big interruption, and you could just many times just quit. And Bruce sort of represented this, this, oh, here's a new avenue for a new kind of art that I, I could put my hands on. And it was clay animation and some uh, stop motion and some, even, there's even uh, like cell drawing kind of animation that Bruce did. I kind of started going through what existed. And I can't tell you how many years Bruce must have lived in the basement at the Zappa house, but he has a room there and it is featured in the movie. He slept downstairs and he would work for years on these animated movies that Frank was doing the music for. And a lot of them were never, ever fully completed. So going through a lot of that footage, I started noticing that there was story elements that went along, I'll just say as if Bruce was 
looking at his life and making, like he made a White House uh, in there. It's not the movie, but he had the White House. It looked like Laurel Canyon. There's these things that were all part of things that Bruce were doing, but I thought, I don't have footage to explain a lot of this stuff. Some moments in time, like in the 80s, be it money or whatever, Frank stopped documenting a lot of things. Like he didn't, even though there was video cameras, it got a little on the thinner side. Um, so when I started looking at this, I was like, well, this is them headed to, it's like, it's not literally, it's like metaphorically, this represents them going to New York. This represents this as though, same way with the monster movie footage. It's a new thing. I just loved it. Like when I put it there, I thought it was goofy, but when I saw it, I, th I said, this works. And we haven't even met Bruce yet but it still feels very Frank Zappa. When I was writing my notes on watching the documentary, when that came up, I had to go, what's the weird, like, New York City buildings? And then 40 minutes later, I'm like, oh, it's the claymation guy. And then you understand. So you did, you did ask yourself that question, what is this? Like, but oh, you made 100%. note of that. Okay, good. Yeah, I mean, you'd have to, if you're watching the movie as an audience member, because the first thing you see of that guy's work is in New York 20 or 30 minutes before you ever see the animator. I love uh, Angel Decca, um, Alex's uh, cameraman. I love that when they went to Bruce's house, he just kind of went off and started going around filming uh, things. And it became a treasure trove for me. But I, I'm so glad that they went and shot all this uh, B-roll uh, of his stuff because it's like a world at his place a cityscape all over the place uh, of a lot of frank life and weird things. Um, I loved it. The very middle of the film is a life-changing event for Frank. I don't know whether we want to describe exactly what it is, but it happens almost perfectly at the center of the film. Was that designed? I started doing things like putting cards up and all the typical things that people, I mean, a story clock, to feel like, uh, you know, where does this land? Where does this land? I mean, literally, like, a, a thesis of the movie happens at 9 minutes and 58 seconds. And by design, I always wanted things to sort of be like that. And there was a an interesting thing that Bruce had filmed a clay animated guy in double exposure falling off of stuff. And I mean, it's minutes and minutes worth of footage. At one point, he even falls by pot leaves. And so I found that. And before Frank falls off the stage one of the missing pieces that got cut from the movie just for time and stuff is that it starts out with a beautiful song called Valerie from the like Ruben and the Jets kind of era of, of Frank. And it's just this of a guy falling and it's a love song about you don't love me anymore kind of thing. And then as it fades up, it turns into this really dark thing of people throwing him off the stage and, 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 injuring him in an almost deathly way. I didn't know anything about Frank getting thrown off the stage. And I felt when I got to that point in the movie, it was discussed as if everybody knew what the deal was. So it took me a while for to kind of catch on to, oh, I guess he got thrown off a stage and <laughs> really got injured. Uh, what was the thought? And is it okay in a documentary to say, I'm going to tell you something and you're, you'll figure it out in the next couple of minutes? I like that anyway. Now, I did say that there was a bit of a lead up to it where emotionally you got like, oh, this is fun. And then it would turn dark and then he's, he's thrown off the stage. And it was just longer 
and it, it, the tone was was as, as fun as it was to watch. The tone was just different, and it ended up being something that there were very few things that were taken out of this movie. It was almost cut to the time all the way through, and that's just one of the pieces that came out. But I also say in 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 the professional world is there's so little footage and so little talk about that incident, be it where he was in his career at that time or something, but finding anything about that incident was so hard. It's not like there was, you know, iPhone footage of any of that stuff. Like there's really one photograph. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? When Frank's in a wheelchair, what kind of footage did you use and where did that come from and how did you find it? I mentioned earlier, I think Frank gravitated toward a lot of interesting people to do interviews, like weird cable access guys and stuff. The traditional mainstream media, I just think it bored him. And the guy, I'm sorry, I don't know his name, who did the interview with him, was speaking to him about the incident that happened and that how some of his band members had said, Frank jumped. It's, it's one of the few times that you know Frank is saying, look, this was life changing for me. And I did, I like making fun of everything, but for some reason that was like a thing that wasn't something he found amusing professionally because his band couldn't go on anymore. So he, he can't do that anymore. Band members have to go do their own thing. And he thought that maybe this isn't going to go any farther. Going through the footage, I found one of his band members, this bunk gardener guy rolling around in the wheelchair in the house, like, and they, and they clicked it, you know, with the camera and sped it up. They also had some uh, photos of the wheelchair footage. When Frank has fallen off the stage, again, it's another kind of conglomerate of Bruce uh, imagery of violence and stuff. Bruce loved violence in Clay Animated, people getting their heads cut off. And it, some of that stuff is so graphic for that time period. Blood coming out of a Clay Animated character. So it is a, it is a montage of violence from Bruce to explain Frank falling off the stage. At 26 minutes, we're back to essentially the inciting incident from the beginning of the film. Going back to Russia, because at the beginning, you just see him on stage for a moment. He, he speaks for, you know, two minutes or something to this, to this audience, and you don't even know what it's all about. And then we come back to that an hour later. Now, originally, uh, I, I mentioned earlier that I returned to literally the, those words. I originally cut that. I went right back to that point, but we did take that out. So it was just back to him tuning the guitar and it was just referenced from the beginning. But that's in Czechoslovakia. The Russia bit was sort of, I think he felt like he was not getting on the radio anymore and there was no avenues for him to consider to have a, a life unless he did something else. When I read his book, because I always knew him as Dweezil's dad, and there's a book that came out by Peter Okio Grosso. It started out as cassette interviews, and I did get those cassettes. It started out as cassette interviews with him. And when Frank read it all, he liked the way it was put together, but just kind of felt like a lot of his humor and charm was lacking. So he said, can I just rewrite some of this as though I'm not being interviewed, as though I'm writing it? And it gave it, it, gave it his thing. Because sometimes he's not the best interviewee. When he looks at it, he'd be like, oh, I don't know why it wasn't funny or something. So he asked to rewrite Peter's phrases in the book with his, his tone. And that book is kind of a gem. So Frank was flying on a plane and I guess he kind of came up with this idea that I think it was Spain had all these trees and Russia at the time during the Cold War was giving out what wasn't even toilet paper to uh, people. And he went, well, why can't there be a company that takes that, makes paper, and we in, you know, put that into Russia. Like, why can't we make businesses that set up with an exchange of currency to start having toilet paper? And stuff like that began to happen, where he was piloting businesses. And 
I always say that at, at the bottom of all of this, sure, there's money and he gets like 8% of a, a business deal or something. He was trying to figure out a way to stay alive and still write his music, even though no one was buying the orchestra music, he was still doing it. I, I say that he was trying to make the world a better place in his own way, but we were threatened with global destruction with nuclear war between Russia. And he's like, well, if we're doing business with each other, the chances that we're going to blow each other up are very slim. And I always say, yeah, also, they won't blow my kids up. I always thought that there was a sweet side of that because he hadn't been around them so much that as an older man, he was sort of maybe paying some of that back. That's me. That's just me adding that. I, 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 they're not his words. But the Russia thing, when he got involved in that, was just business deals. And in the middle of that, that's how he sort of met with the Czechoslovakia people. The parallels between him and the Beatles were, were that they were the most phenomenal thing going at that time. And he would be the most unphenomenal thing at the time. Like he was almost striving to not be successful in a way, in a way that they were, and he picked on them. You know, he sort of kidded them. And they themselves sort of imploded in that way. And in an odd way, began to start attaching themselves to the weird stuff that he was doing. And I find that just so baffling that they were uniting with some of his ideals, uh, being in his projects and collaborating with him and stuff. So when I knew... Frank goes to Czechoslovakia and he gets out of the airport and the, the reception is not what you would expect. And when I saw the footage, which came from his, predominantly from his cameraman at the time, I mean, they're blown away. I went back to find all the Beatles footage I could, which resembled that to put up front so that you see what he'll never be. But then at the end, it parallels in its own way. It's like the Frank Zappa version of the Beatles at the airport from their heyday. That's definitely what it felt like in the documentary was Frank's version of being the Beatles. And it wasn't in the United States, which is also the like, it wasn't here. And it'd be like, oh, I get it. He's such an acquired taste. No one will like this. <laughs> but you go to this other country and they just found him to be the Beatles, you know, like it's kind of mind blowing. You know, for the movie sets, I, I always just think that people who don't like him or don't know him, they're not going to hate this movie. I, I want you to know things about him and maybe a way into his music or something, but it doesn't have to change your perception. It's just, it's giving you insight into, into his world as like this artist that was sort of an independent artist when people weren't. Like he was sort of the invention of the independent artist and rebelling against the record companies and people who are trying to change his art. Um, uh, about some of the music stuff, there's a Yellow Shark is the name of the composition, right? Uh, one of the orchestral compositions. It's an album, yeah. And obviously you you can't afford to play the entire album <laughs> in, a, in the documentary of this length, but it felt very complete. Can you talk about trying to edit something that is a piece of music that you know is longer than what you're getting to listen to and yet feeling like you got to listen to it. It's happened a lot in, in work that I do. Like, I think it came down to that cut of that song is the way I did it the first time. Because if you, wow. do, listen, if you do listen to the song, it takes you out of what's going on to do something else. It's a classic Frank thing that you could start out with uh, sad music and it turns into crazy music. It turns into something else. And so that one petite, uh, piece of music, it has this frenetic quality to it that in the middle of it, it turns into a different feeling, which, which almost w would be uneventful for the end of, uh, of a movie sort of thing. The thing about that is most all of that footage has always been augmented. And I got to speak to the people who shot that concert at the time. And although I started out with a line cut 
I would re-edit the line cut to be what I wanted, hoping that there were tapes, uh, I believe on Beta SP at the time, PAL, in Germany of that event. And so looking at the time code, I would write them and say, look, it's probably time of day, time code, this is where you're going to find the stuff I'm looking for. And they were pulling things to help me augment that. And some things just the tapes didn't work anymore. So I did get some media so that I could recut it to make it feel more our movie centric than just a line cut of a show. It's always that uh, idea of how long you should let something play, right? And the very last thing, Frank gets a very, 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 very long standing ovation. Uh, so long that you couldn't have put the whole thing in the whole movie. It would have taken the last act <laughs> to show just the applause. So how did you decide how long to make that so that it didn't feel too long, but that you did get the sense that these people applauded for a very long time. When I first did that, I did actually play with some, putting some score in there and feel how long I wanted it to feel using music. And then taking the music away, like how long can I take this without the music kind of thing? So I put the music in first and went, that's the point where I think it's too long. And then I took the music away and went, well, without the music, how long? And it's neat how, in this case, the applause, which is not augmented, uh, by the way, the applause is like score. And there were also sounds that were being played at that time. There was a, a weird horn thing that a guy keeps boning, a, a cow thing, and that's authentic to the time. But it goes out on a piece of music that I would say is the most beautiful thing that Frank Zappa ever did. And it's on Joe's Garage. And if you ever listen to this record, it really is kind of encompasses him in a way. And it is called Watermelon and Easter Hay. And it's probably one of his best guitar pieces ever. And it's emotional. And there is the album track. And originally I was going to use the album track. But to go from all that, you know, clapping and cheering into the album track felt lacking. So I looked at all of his different versions of that song a lot. I found one that I liked the performance and the crowd. So there is a merger of the two as it goes out from the live performance of that song and the real applause from the performance of the thing. I love that because it's, it's that idea of tone and feeling, right? That you could have just given up and gone, well, it's a great song. So I'll just use the the studio performance. But no, you you pushed it a little bit further. And then you also mentioned something that got cut out. You, you tried to make a composition based on room tone. I actually have that as a Vimeo link. Maybe I'll share it with you. I always tried to make every scene have some form of composition in it, as though it was a musical composition. And the beginning of the movie, when it shows Frank's vault and there's words at the bottom of the screen, I even took room tone from the different selections of the footage and put them into a frequency pattern that makes a five-note structure that if you were to play it on a keyboard, it is a piece of music. Uh, and so various times I would do that throughout the movie, but that one's the one that's kind of the most iconic to me because what you're being denied is the timing to know what it is. But if I play it for you in the right time, you'll know what it is. So it's just stuff like, like I was always trying to put stuff like that in it. So that almost just feels like it's a very Steve Vai, you know, Frank's guitar player kind of thing. But making sure that I was adding that to most every scene I could and hoping that, you know, when it goes to mix and all that stuff, that it is still in there, it is still apparent. But that is a five note structure that could be written on a, uh, a chart and somebody could play it. 
And theoretically, Steve, you would know what it was. Love it. What a great answer. Uh, it was a pleasure talking to you, Mike, today. And I thank you. Is there anything else you want to cover? Did I leave anything out? I was going to give a, a nod to you as I listen to your show as much as I can. And this is kind of a subject matter that doesn't get talked about. And you have a, you know, a romance with this, obviously, personally and professionally. I'm sharing this kind of stuff. So I always try to listen to these as much as possible. And the Walter Murch one, I, I love. I even have a quote where he said, I think that editors of a documentary should always be uh, listed as a, as, a, as a writer. And I'm like, oh, there's my ring. There's my ringtone. You know, like, I just think it should always be on the table at the very beginning. And in the end, if you didn't, you know, contribute in that way, you just take it away. But, to, you know, go through all of that. You know that it, it just is. I, I sent you something that was kind of jokey, too, that I was doing is because I made a lot of sound effects in this movie. Um, I love the Wilhelm scream. And so for those, I think everybody knows what that is, right? It's a scream that's been used in every movie. Yeah. I always I always try to find a way to run it backwards and forwards and do something with it because it's amusing to me. And I, I of course, discovered it through Ben Burt of the Star Wars fame, and he really used it in all the movies. It's now been retired. But I always try to find a way to use it for something. When Varez music is playing, it's kind of this obnoxious thing where people would scream, and, and there is footage of Frank's brother and sister, like, screaming and you know, it's, so my normal first gut reaction would have been, oh, I got I to gotta find a way to put the Wilhelm scream in there some way. But I've sort of given up using it, and so I made my own thing. And the, the dorky part of it is I called it Good Wilhelming. Um, <laughs> I know. And so uh, the, the point was is I was just going to offer this up to people to, as a giveaway, and it's free. And you'll be able to use it. And, and Steve, you're making something and you need to put, you just put in this good Wilhelming sound effect. And, and to me, it's like communicating with your peers who appreciate the work that you do that sometimes the above the line people don't notice. So here I am watching something that you or uh, somebody else I know is working on. And all of a sudden I hear that little bit. I'm like, ah, there's your kinship with those people. No one else will notice. But it's like the Wilhelm scream was this little nod that, um, you know, Ben Burt was doing. And so I started doing it. And so I'm, I'm going to leave that for people to use however they want to in all their little uh, projects. And I made a little video, which I'll give you a link. I'll have to check out the uh, Goodwill Helming scream, <laughs> scream for, uh, for posterity. Hope Thank everybody you, else sir. does too. For Talk to you later. Bye, Mike. That's it for Out of the Cut this week. Thanks for listening. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for nearly 300 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guest, Mike Nichols. And to Paul McKenna for mixing and mastering this episode and all previous episodes. This episode of Art of the Cut and all previous episodes were edited in Adobe Audition. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hallfish. I hope you subscribe to this podcast and give it a review, please. And finally, be sure to share them with a filmmaking or film-loving friend.